Hey guys, I want to welcome you to another edition of, actually this is probably one of our first editions of um, our Halftime Chat R&B podcast. I'm going to have a special guest um, live, um, um, he's, a, he's a writer, music historian, and owner of Soul of Black Music Notes, um, blog sports. Um, which is dedicated to the preservation of black music. So I'm going to invite Sheldon in and we're just going to have a, be able to have a talk and chat about all things music. Um, some me Jack swing. Um, you know, we've just recently celebrated what 30 years of Bobby Brown is uh, his Bobby album. And um, okay. How you doing Sheldon? <laughs> Hey, how you doing? You doing good? Yes, yes. Good to finally get to meet you and stuff. So I'm just yes, gonna... <laughs> yes. Give me, give me the cake. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go. I'm just recording this, but I'm gonna go take us live soon and stuff. But um, yeah. Sure. What what else? What are we focusing on? Are we? Is it the Bobby album? Are we gonna be able to touch on some things, Teddy? What are your? Oh, uh, we 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 can. I think we let's do the Bobby, and then what we can do is we can kind of slide over into the Teddy now. What do you want to talk about in terms about Teddy? Um, let's. I want to. If we can focus on his his place in music history, I mean, we're big fans. I, I, it's always good to be able to start off and and focus on what he's done good, and then we could probably say, look, he's done some recent interviews, and there seems to be some discrepancy, and so just our thoughts. Yeah, and what I, what I'm doing basically how how I see that is uh, which is important. Um, for what we do as curators, as historians, because what happens is they make the history, we document the history, and we capture the history a lot of times, and it's after the fact, right? Yeah. So what happens is people who are making history at times, because they're doing it in real time, they, first of all, they're not historians. Mm -hmm. They're artists, they're musicians, they're creative people. So what happens is they're so caught up in what's going on on a creative end that they're not necessarily documenting uh, whether it's photos, they're not capturing the historical context of it. And that's why, and the, and the argument could be when it comes to the artists and then the writers and, and people like yourself is that we come along after the fact, but we weren't there. Oh, Michelle, you know, okay, this is a lot of good stuff. So I want us to be able to go live with this stuff. So <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, so, so we'll, we'll go back into it. We'll go back into okay. it. So I guess the yeah. biggest thing I want to capture to put it in perspective is that we're not there, but it's important that if we're not there, the accomplishments of these artists, they wouldn't, they wouldn't exist, especially in black music, because black music, a lot of times, um, the, hist the history is co-opted, is reframed all of these different type of things, or they take other people and put them in, in the place of black history. And then a lot of the key components get left out. I'm not talking about the drama, yeah. but the historical accomplishments and the prevalence of the music. So what happens is when you get artists sometimes telling their story, Teddy, <laughs> that what happens is you're forgetting stuff, uh, you're, leaving, you're leaving out stuff, sometimes, yeah, they could be telling, you know, it could be lies. Yeah. Okay. You know, okay. or you're trying to protect people. There's a lot of different things, man. So I hear a lot of interviews and 
it's, for me, it's disappointing because, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of the music and stuff like that. For me, the, the, the total history is very, it's exciting, it's interesting, but when it's not captured in a proper context, it can be very frustrating because, you know, I've read articles uh, that were written, that interviews of these people back in the time when they were doing it. And, and I still have archives of this stuff. So when I hear what they're saying, and I go back, don't get me wrong, people can figure stuff over the course of 30 years, man, but it, 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 the fabrication yeah. is, is really ridiculous or whatever. So I kind of like, there's a respect factor because like I said, what you do is you, you, you deal with them with integrity and with respect. But at the same time, you already know from talking to Mucho and those guys, and those guys are respectful, but at the same time, if you read in between the lines, when you look at the accomplishments of these people, they didn't do it by themselves. Yeah, yeah. So so it's very, it's kind of interesting or whatever that is. But yeah, 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 we can do that. We can talk about that. So, and I'll just frame it in that way. Yeah, and I'll be fine. It. Yeah, because when we talk about these, these, these people in terms of that, in the, in the midst of, let's say the guy situation, in the midst of we're saying, okay, yeah, the, the three different stories, you know, depending on who's talking, it's fabricated, it's tough, it's fa but next thing you know, a month later, they back together in their own tour. <laughs> yeah, and, and then, then what happens is, and we look bad because yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, but in yeah. the same time, come on. <laughs> and they, to me, they're, and they're, they're, that's my favorite group of all time, yeah. but they're running out of time. Yeah. <laughs> These guys, they're in their 50s, you yeah. know, and it's like, okay, but yeah, so you know, whenever you're ready, we can whatever yeah, you want to do. So okay. we're talk about Teddy's legacy. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about Teddy's legacy, and then we can roll over into yeah. the Bobby album. Let's do that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So let me, let me get let me connect it live on Facebook. Uh, sorry, YouTube. Sure. And sure. As is, hold on. Uh, get it connected here. Um, yeah. Hold on. Uh, hold on. Let me. Yeah. Once. Yeah. Let me get it connected. Once I get connected. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's me. And um, yeah. So okay. Yeah. So we're going to start with. Um, we're going to go what the Bobby album or the Teddy or the Bobby. I tell you what. Let's go ahead because for me. The Bobby album is Teddy's. To me, it's my favorite. Okay. Alongside the Guy album. And then yeah. what happened, let's talk about the album first. Yeah. And then we'll roll over into the Teddy because that album for me is one of Teddy's best productions that I'm going to kind of explain and kind of put things in the context. And then what we'll do is we'll look at his, we'll look at his legacy, his, his, his accomplishments and the significance of who he was mm -hmm. um, in that time. Okay. And then whatever after that we can kind of go into that, you know. Okay. Um what is because what I don't want to do is I don't wanna we could say he's done the interviews, but we don't want to redirect that traffic over to the other platform. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Even though it's there. Yeah, you don't want to redirect that energy back over to the other platform. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Because he just dropped, he just dropped a new clip like fifty minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, 
let me see. Um, yeah, which 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 I saw. Okay, um, something just went wrong here. Yeah, I saw it, and uh, yeah, I, I anyway. I mean, I I I got into, I got into this whole stuff. These grant necessary privileges um, connected. I've not had this now. You know, and at the same time, I want to kind of keep the door open for you, for these cats to come on your platform, because you've already had Damien on your platform, you know, and, you know, it would be great to have Aaron on your platform and all of that. So, you know, and based on his experience, he could be kind of testy or whatever, because everything has happened to him, you know. So, yeah. you know, you have you have the platform and no one's doing what you're doing. So. You know, obviously, it's, tell the truth or whatever, but at the same time, when you get people feel like, oh, man, they're going to roast me, you know, and all that, you know, I want you to ma make sure you maintain that integrity of that. But obviously, I'll, I'm going to kind of speak on some stuff. It'll be like, and you hear, you'll know what I'm talking about is that a lot of art, I'll say a lot of artists do interviews. And what happens is sometimes based on the interview, it's not, the content is not consistent for whatever reason. Yeah, definitely. And um, okay, I need to try and I'm not sure why um, the default browser. Okay, make the false. Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I, I'm getting. Yeah, I've never had this. Um, uh, it seems to be. Normally it would go live, but I am going to get it. Done now. Yep. Okay. So I'll try this one last time. Um, uh, okay. Yeah. So we should be going live right now. Um, Okay. Yes, it is going live. So, guys, I want to um, walk you to, um, I think, one of my first editions of this um, R&B podcast on Halftime Chat. And, um, you know, it's, it's, I've really got um, a friend of mine who I've been connected with um, for our love of New Jack Swing, uh, Teddy. Um, it is Sheldon Taylor. He is a writer. Uh, music historian. He's the owner of Soul of Black. It's um, it's a website that just is dedicated to for the history, historic preservation of black music. And so, um, you know, if you if you guys have recently realized that um, the Bobby album, which is one of my favorite, I think that and Make It Last Forever album are two, my two favorite. It we just celebrate thirty years, and, and my favorite producer of all times, Teddy, did the bulk of the production but Sheldon I mean I want to welcome you I mean it's good to finally get to to meet you and see you and stuff but you know just to jump in I mean what are your remembrance of of the Mr. Bobby album? Um, I want to go back to I guess it's the summer of 92 and when an album was coming out uh, it was a big buzz uh, on the fan base side because people were really excited about the album coming out because it had already been four years since the Don't Be Cruel album. Mm -hmm. 
And yeah. the Don't Be Cruel album was very significant, significant obviously, because um, that album was a reintroduction to Bobby and it solidified him as a solo artist. So when you look at what Thriller and the videos that came off the album, what it did for Michael Jackson, it was the same thing for Bobby Brown. Yeah. When you look at Don't Be Cruel. And the Bobby album was a perfect follow-up. Um, the reason that made it a great follow-up is that there were a lot of ingredients on the Bobby album um, that were a continuation of what was on Don't, Don't Be Cruel. I like to call the Bobby album R&B's Lost Modern Album because mm. when it dropped um, in 1992, it dropped during the time when the music was changing. Obviously, West Coast hip hop is coming in. Yeah. Um, the music is kind of slowing down. Prior to that, the energy of the New Jack Swing, um, the dance styles, everything that was all encapsulated in that time period, let's say from 88 to 1991. And then all of a sudden in 1992, and in a chronic, in a snoop. And you're starting to see the rise of a lot of West Coast artists and the music is kind of slowing down. And even though the R&B still has the vibe of the, the new Jack Swing flavor. What's happening is that music is starting to morph into what we know now as hip hop soul. Mm. Um, it becomes more sample oriented. Um, the beats per minute or a lot slower. It's more about the head nod. Uh, the dances reflect the music. So the high energy of the new Jack Swing uh, music is kind of making that transition into hip hop soul. Wow. And when you look at the Bobby album, I like to compare it to uh, Run DMC's 1988 album, Tougher Than Leather, which was a follow up to their smash of 86 Raising Hell. I like to compare it to uh, Michael Jackson's Bad album. Um, Bobby kind of falls in the line of those other two albums because what happens is had all of these three albums been released a year earlier. Yeah. Um, I think the reception might have been a little different. Um, they might have done a little bit better in terms of record sales, even though all of those albums sold a lot. Yeah. Um, the reception, you know, you have to kind of just drop that music at the right time. Yeah. And Bobby kind of fell into the cracks because when you look at um, Run DMC's Raising Hell back in 86, that was one of the rap albums that kind of elevated rap to more crossover. It turned Run DMC into major, major, mega superstars. Um, when you look in terms of um, Tupper and Lover coming after that, it dropped a year and a half after that instead of 87. Prior to that, Run DMC was dropping an album every single year. However, they had some contract disputes that kind of slowed their momentum. So by the time they dropped Tougher Than Lover in 1988, you had all of these classic albums in 1988 that were pushing rap music in a different direction. And even though Tougher Than Lover sold a million and a half copies, Run DMC weren't the leaders of that movement anymore. The styles had changed. So mm -hmm. now Run DMC was trying to play catch up. Mm -hmm. um, when you look at Michael Jackson's bag, um, it comes out in 87. Um, at the time, obviously the Minneapolis sound was still huge. Um, the album dropped um, in the summer of 87. 
but six months later, or really, you know, when you look at fall 87, you start to see the shift in black music. You start mm. seeing Teddy's music starting to come out. Um, Kumo D's How You Like Me Now, King Sweat's I Wanna, Johnny Kemp's uh, Just Got Paid. Fast forward to 88, the music is now in effect. And during this time, Michael Jackson is still putting out videos. He's, the album is still selling. Um, at the time, at his peak, it might have sold 35 million copies or whatever, maybe seven or eight um, million copies less of Thriller. So the album was big. But when 88 rolled around, um, the music kind of changed and bad kind of sounded kind of old. Still mm. a great album, yeah. but aesthetically, um, it was in a, it, it found itself in a totally different space compared to what was going on in 88. And the Bobby album was the same way because the, for me, the album was excellent. It was superior. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. when in 92, when Bobby dropped, that's also the time Mary J. Blige's was the 411 drop. Oh, yeah, yeah, and when yeah. you look at both of those albums, the sound is totally different. So it's almost like when you go back and you saw what Run DMC was doing when they came after all the Grandmaster Flashes and everybody like that, and their music was stripped down. Well, What's the 411 was in that same space. The music was stripped down. It was sample driven. So compared to what Bobby's was, uh, Bobby's album slipped through the cracks. Even though the album sold 2 million copies, and there's a moment in time in 92 where the album goes number one, then it drops down, then it goes in number one. It kind of switches off mm -hmm. um, and trades places with what's the 411 for the number one spot. Wow. And in the album sales, obviously, a lot of videos are coming off the album. But compared to what the Don't Be Cruel album did, mm. um, in his initial run, it sold about seven to eight million copies. Ultimately, it went up to double figures in sales beyond Diamond, over 10 million. But at that point, the music was shifting. You have a lot more artists. The landscape was changing. So that's why I call Bobby Bobby's album, the third album, the R&B's Lost Album. But it's still great. It's still superior. Uh, what makes that album great is it's really almost a continuation of Don't Be Cruel. So when you look at how the album is set up, obviously you hear the first track, which is the, the refrain, the melody, the keyboard riffs that open up the Don't Be Cruel album. And then when you hear the turntable scratches off and all of a sudden humping around comes on. So it kind of references uh, what he did, kind of almost like what Rockin' was saying when he came out with his Father the Leader album, 888, that replaced the uh, follow-up to Payton 4. He says, I was giving you time to get the last one straight. You know, <laughs> so when you look at the, don't, the, the Bobby album, it kind of followed up on that to where it drops Humping Around comes on, and then Humping Around kind of continues the theme of the Don't Be Cruel because it deals with the male-female relationship, the push and pull, and um, the song's content lyrically. Obviously, Bobby is pushing back against rumors about him uh, cheating on his girlfriend. So if you go back <laughs> to a record that dropped um, around 1977 by a group called The Emotions, they had a song called Don't Ask My Neighbor. It's an mm -hmm. R&B ballad. The theme is the same because you're dealing with rumors, you're dealing with cheating, all of that. And it kind of, in this particular song, you know, Bobby is kind of, it's a finger wag. He's kind of like 
admonishing his girlfriend like, hey, I'm not doing that. The same way he was admonishing his, 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 his girlfriend and don't be cruel. So you see that theme. And then when you look at a song like uh, Getaway, Getaway kind of continues the theme of my prerogative. There's lyrics in my prerogative where Bobby is dealing with the frustrations of uh, being judged mm. as an individual and his response to that. But when you look at the lyrics in Getaway, same situation, he's dealing with uh, the pressures, he's dealing with people and he's looking for an escape. So, you know, Getaway kind of continues that that theme um, of my prerogative. So there's a lot of familiar moments in Bobby that kind of reference the first album. Um, for me, the production on the album was superior. Obviously, when you start looking at um, the sequencing of the album, mm. um, you see a lot of LA and Faces records and there's Teddy's records. And it kind of you know repeats the theme once again of Don't Be Cruel because the lead off single, um, Don't Be Cruel, was the title track. So when you go to Bobby, the lead off song was Humping Around. Yeah, Follow up I, song. Go ahead. But I, I, I remember seeing an interview with Lil Sal Jr., who was the then president of MCA of Black Music, mm -hmm. saying that his biggest regret is that he thought he could emulate the the sequencing of Don't Be Cruel by releasing two LA and Reed, LA and Babyface tracks and then follow up with Teddy. But it seems as if he the Mr. Trick where Teddy's productions, like maybe two to two can play that game or um get away or that's the way love goes were probably much stronger tracks that should have let out the album instead of the humping around and good enough. You know what? I, I agree with you. When I look back at that album, for me, um, the favorite moments of that album were Teddy's productions. Yeah. Bar none. And the reason why is because you saw an elevation um, in Teddy's production. First of all, you got to give Teddy a lot of credit because that album, the, the album follows a sequence of work that he's doing, let's say between 90 and 91 going into 92, where he's on a creative tear. Because yeah. understand, there's the guy thing. You know, there's the remixes on the side that's happening in 90 and 91. Uh, even though the group breaks up around 91 they're still releasing singles okay like your favorite song let's you know let's stay together yeah there's a single that comes out in in, in 92. Oh. so the album is still on the charts it's you know singles are coming off and then during that time he's going from guy and jane chow remixes and remember during this time in 91 um he's also doing michael jackson yeah. Right. And then right behind it, you got tracks for the Bobby album. Um, in between that, you also he's doing tracks for um the house party two soundtrack. Oh, yes, big right. You got yeah, big bub, yeah. You, know, you got track. juice, Tammy Lucas, and all of that. So, you know, he's on a creative tear between 90 and 92. So when you look at all the music that he's putting out, great music, classic music, that momentum. So um, I felt that the album should have leaned toward a lot of Teddy's productions yeah. first. Uh, I remember 
um, seeing an interview that Teddy did, and he kind of briefly referenced that it was a lot of politics behind the scenes mm. in terms of why the LaFace records got pushed first. Okay. So because if you look at that album, um, the majority of the singles are all LaFace records. Pumping around. And it was good, good enough. enough. Yeah, and then it's, um, I think it was lo uh, not loving you down, but um, yeah, it was, um, but, it, they, but they weren't the strongest when you think no. of the album, they weren't the strongest and it didn't, I mean, as humping around was, but it 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 wasn't as you know, especially a song like, a song like Two Can Play That Game." You know, they had a movie called Two Can Play That Game." It and it, mm -hmm. the, the dynamics of that type of relationship was probably a lot bigger at that time. Those type that, that type of lyric, and I thought that that would have been a, a trick that they could have gone by. Um, even Rex and Effects were, you know, had rump shakers. So even thinking about using "That's the Way Love Goes" featuring Arkill and Rex and Effects. Um, probably also with bigger, stronger tracks and and stuff. So I, I as I said, you, you, it must have been the politics, but it was it wasn't a missed opportunity. And you know, Teddy says, yeah, I think because Bobby even even doing something like um, we got something in common because Whitney was the biggest star at the time, and then mm -hmm. having that as the second single also could have done something. But I have no idea how they planned the marketing with that. Yeah, when you look at back, because you know, when you look at the way albums are set up now or now everything is streaming, but there was a better synergy um, for albums coming out. I guess the best person who I can kind of um, align that with is Beyonce. Okay. Beyonce is very savvy when it comes, and Jay-Z, they, they put out albums, there's synergies there, um, if they got guests, Everything the setup is great. Not saying that the Bobby setup was not great because there was a lot of publicity um, done with that album. Yeah. But I think in that moment, the Teddy Riley records should have gotten a lot more attention. For me, um, I love the chemistry between Bobby and Teddy on yeah. to play that game because you see that chemistry. It's a chemistry that even though Bobby's not necessarily like engaging with Teddy on you know, my prerogative, but you see that it's, it's like a reference, you know, yeah. it recalls that energy that they have between each other. Yeah. And the, the record is really dope. You know, um, two can play that game is nice. You know, loving you down was great. Oh yeah. yeah. Just, love... you know, the, the, the one I'm more time. You, reason, <laughs> one, all of those, exactly. <laughs> all of those records were excellent. And I think they captured Bobby's range, mm, yeah. you know, not not the not the no knock on the LaFace records because the LaFace records were great because they gave Bobby they showed the polish like good enough, kind of elevated him as a ballad, you know, and you know he's polished there, and then of course humping the lead single, so they're trying to follow that trend of don't be cruel or whatever. Um, there's another record that they did, but really to mm. me when I look at that album, Bobby is. It's almost like to me that's a Teddy Riley album. Yeah, yeah. I see it as a Teddy Riley album. So when you look at once again, two can play that game. It had that rough edge that suited Bobby, and it was just dope. Um, and then when you start looking at Getaway, Getaway also had, like I said earlier, the strains of the My Prerogative mm. in terms of the lyrics. And then you look at the other records that he did, whether it's One More Night. Yeah. Um, 
It was loving something you down. In common. Was, yeah, something in common. Me, yeah. Yes. And those records captured Bobby's range. They captured his range in terms of that. And I think they would, and then and they videos were made from those records. It would have been great. To me, the worst thing in the world, and I think because that album had been out for a while and they were trying to just really melt the singles. <laughs> the I did remi- not like the remixes. <laughs> I hated the remixes. The oh, remixes, goodness. you know, to all respect, do, but the remixes did not capture um, the essence of the songs. The originals were very strong. Yeah. Um, I wrote an article. Um, okay. about the Bobby Brown's um, Bobby's album in my, in my, on my website, uh, Souls of Black Note at Blogspot. And it talks about, you know, when that album dropped, the musical climate at the time and the videos that came along with it. When you saw the videos from Don't Be Cruel, they really captured Bobby in his element as a singular artist. You saw the swagger, yeah. you saw the choreography, Mm-hmm. It was him. But then when you saw some of the videos that he was doing, um, I'll just say from humping around, um, I'll say getaway. You got the and and that's how love goes. That's the mm-hmm. way love is. That's the way love you know, is. he's there, he's got the background dancing. So it's almost like you were ahead. You were ahead of everybody. But then you kind of like, I don't say he lost a step, but then I guess it was the style. Because more is less, you don't see a lot of his dancing. Yeah. He's got all the background dancers with him. Kind of like when you see uh, the BBD, you know, you got the whole thing and it kind of pulls away from his charisma and the magnitude of his stage presence. And I think that those records that Teddy made, they would have been, they would have made excellent videos for him to really just come across and dance and do his thing versus having, you know, all of the female dances that he had. No disrespect to them because a lot of them were in a lot of other music videos. But I think that um, Bobby Brown, the Bobby album should have been a setup in the same manner of you look at uh, Usher's album. You see his three run. You'll see My Way, 8701, Confessions. So it was a setup. It was a progression. And the Bobby album could have been that and it just for me it, it was a missed opportunity but again a lot of media a lot of press yeah. but I just think that the Teddy the Teddy songs would have given the emphasis on the Teddy on Teddy's productions would have given the song the album a lot more weight yeah. a lot more longevity because really the pocket of that album even though they had singles coming out going into 93 but when you look at the arrival of hip hop soul, it kind of changed the momentum of the way music was going. So that album got lost to the cracks. Yeah. But you know, in all due respect, you got to remember is that "Don't Be Cool" comes out in '88. So let's say from '88 to '89 to '90, Bobby's he's on tour. He's on tour for like two and a half straight years. So imagine if he would have came straight off to on tour, went in the studio, made that album, but understandably um, that might not have happened because obviously you see what Teddy was doing. He was doing the Michael Jackson yeah. tracks and yeah. the guy thing or whatever. So we just, you know, we really don't know. Yeah. And um, they had a period or whatever where they had their 
you know, issues or whatever of estrangement or whatnot. So, you know, it's just a lot of different things going on because if you look at the one single, it was called um, Something in My Heart. It was an up-tempo record that Bobby Brown had come out with. Yeah. It was more yeah. like a rap record. Yeah. And I think that if that record he came out with, um, I remember seeing him on an MTV Awards show. Yeah, MTV Awards. Yeah. And he was performing that record and the record was cool. But I'm glad that he didn't go in that direction and he went to L.A. Reid and he went back to Teddy to go ahead to do the album. Because for me, even though Don't Be Cruel is signature and um, Roni and My Prerogative and even Humping Around, those songs have a lot of sentimental value because once again, they were a reintroduction to Bobby Brown, a Bobby Brown to the public. Yeah, and we took to those songs. Yeah, but I think Bobby was a stronger album in terms of the compositions. And you got to look at what Teddy was doing on those records. You know, production was great. Yeah, but you also have to look at the the background vocals <laughs> of those songs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's. I think he took background vocals to another level with with that. Um, you know, the way they harmonized and, and came in and stuff. And, yeah. you know, listening to people like John Marie, who was the engineer on that, so um, Levi, who, who who was in Blackstreet, who sang backgrounds, Tammy Lucas saying she couldn't perform because of her voice, but, you know, all the others flew in. And um, even Eric Williams said, you know, when they were doing their stuff and they, they got to hear a preview of that, they just thought, wow, this is on another level. And... You know, and, 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 but think and, about what you just said, another level, because what happens is the another level album, when you look at the background vocals on that, it recalls the Bobby album. Yeah. Yeah. And and I and I do wonder if Teddy even because the, the Bobby album reminds me of Make It Last Forever, because it's almost as if Teddy wasn't thinking, he just created. Because um, when I seen him subsequently, it's almost as if okay, let me. I want to try and make a good record, and so it it doesn't pull off. But when he did the Make It Last Forever album, and when he did the Bobby album, it's almost like he left everything out there creatively, and it just it was just magic. That's why those two albums to me just seem to be his best composition of work. You know, when it comes to, I mean, I think he did. That he did about eight and a half, seven and a half on, on Make It Last Forever. He did seven on the Bobby album. It just felt like he just says, "Okay, I'm just gonna bring out all the magic on the on this stuff," and he and he just did. Um, but I mean, if we move, because I mean, Teddy has been on the news recently. I mean, you know, we both share our, our admiration for Teddy as the as the creator, as an amazing music creator. But um, as somebody who looks at history, because I've I remember when you showed me an article of of GR production when they're signing the stuff and, and and you know, and this is before I even started talking to people about Gene Griffin and all that stuff. But as a as a creator, when you think about Teddy as a creator as a producer, when was his best work? Was it was it after? Was it before GR Productions? Did that sort of stifle him, or was he just doing work for hire, or was it after GR Production? What are your thoughts? I'm, I'm going to tell you, my favorite Teddy period um, is the 87-ish, 88 
to about roughly the 90, 90, not 90. I like, I, that's my favorite period because when I first heard about him, it was just strange. I mean, I had heard the records, the show, Be Fast, Wop It, and all these other type of things, but this was during the period where there was no internet, um, there weren't any publications dedicated to the music. So you just basically heard what you heard on the radio. And at that time, you know, unless you were from the New York area, you were there. Cause again, black music was pretty much on a whole, it was, it was his own entity. So that meant if you were a fan, um, the fan base kind of revolved, black music revolved around its own orbit. It was, this was, you know, before sound scan, before records being debuted on the Hot 100, going to number one. Yeah. R&B used to be a type of music, and it kind of still is to that matter, is that it was always on the peripheral. R&B's value to the outside world was its, commer its commercial value. Wow. If it could sell records, R&B was great. But the fan base was the component that drove R&B music. So when you look in terms of, I'll just say the 70s. 1970s is kind of when the music grew up. The, the crossroads between concepts, um, commercial value, um, the artistic growth, all of that, all of those great music, all the great albums that we saw that came out in the 1970s, all those great groups. So that's the period where Black music grew up. In the 80s, now Black music is going to a more commercial component. Obviously, it's been well-documented. The Anita Bakers, the Princes, the Michael Jacksons, the Lionel Richies, you know. But then what happens is when the 90s rolls around, the 90s is a younger reinterpretation of the music in the past, which is what makes it special. So when I heard Teddy doing the music, I heard the music before I knew who he was. And when I started seeing his name in magazines around late 87, mm. I thought he was an older guy. I thought he was an older cat. And this is the time <laughs> when I, I thought, this is when um, I Warner was out. Okay. So that record was out. And I, I didn't know who he was. I'm starting to hear these records and they're sounding different. Cause you know, and I remember mid 87, um, I joined the service. And at that time, Minneapolis Sound was popping. It was everything. Okay. And Jim, then- Jim, Jim and Terry Lewis, guys. Yes, yes, yes. And then on my way to going overseas, all the music is starting to change, the rhythms. You know, I'm hearing I Wanna, and I Wanna sounds nothing like Jam and Lewis. I'm hearing um, the Kumo D record. How you like me now? And I'm hearing it's James Brown, and it's nothing, nothing like what's out there. So now I go overseas, and there's no black radio, so I got to play catch up. So I'm hearing these songs, and I'm hearing to see this guy, Teddy Riley, Teddy Riley, Teddy Riley. And I'm like, who is this person? So then the very first time I see them, I see them on the Apollo. And you've seen the clip. Yeah. around 88 they're performing and I'm seeing guy and they don't look like whoever was out six months to a year before they don't look like cameo okay. you know they don't it's just they had the goatees they had the look they had the hair and I'm looking at these guys and I'm like okay those two look like brothers and you know it was just like you trying to figure out who is who 
but then I would say around around like mid 88, it was the records were coming. And then I heard the guy album, the Groove Me and Teddy's Jam and all those records or whatever. And the album was, it was great because it was a totally different sound, it was a totally different vibe. And for me, um, I grew up in the era of all those 80s groups, specifically the Gap Band. So when I heard Guy, it was like, it's the Gap Band. And for a hot minute, I didn't want to like the Guy album <laughs> because I'm like, these guys, this is the Gap Band all the way. I'm listening to Aaron and he's doing his thing. And I'm like, and I'm going to tell you, this is a funny story, is that when I heard that album, I listened to it. I listened to it again. And I said, you know what? It's not going to work. <laughs> I went to my record collection and I pulled out this old Gap Band album, right? Looked on the back, found the, the address to the record company and their manager. And at that time, I was kind of dabbling in songwriting, not too much. But in my mind, I was like, I wrote a letter. I literally mailed it. And the letter was like, hey, these guys are coming out. They got music that sounds like you. I could bring you back. <laughs> now, at this time, I'm like 18. So <laughs> I don't know any better. But I'm like, I could bring you back. But then when I played, I played the album again, I was like, man, I was hooked. I was hooked. So I, would, I lived in Tower Records. So anything that had Teddy Riley, GR Productions, <laughs> I was buying it, man. Wow. Everything. I was loving it. I was just, I had to get it. And um, I remember, that's why I love that era so much, because the, it was a new type of music. Because people talk about the merger with the hip hop and the R&B, but it wasn't just the beats and the production. It was also um, the way the records were arranged vocally. Because if you listen to any type of Teddy Roddy production that came out, let's say between 88 and about like 92, but specifically that 88 to 90 period. Yeah. It's a way that they're singing, you know it's a Teddy Roddy production. Mm. Especially like when you get to the bridge of the record because the arrangement kind of changes. And the best way I can kind of frame it is if you listen to my prerogative and at the bridge, when they go, when Bobby goes into the hook, um, tell me, tell me, why can't I live my life? Mm. And when you listen to the, it, it kind of goes up. The tension, the bridge, and at most Teddy Riley records, the productions that he was doing, everybody's singing that way. Everybody's singing that way, like at the bridge. You go back and listen to a lot of those records that he produced, and you and you hear it. And it was so dope because everybody started to copy those records. They copied, <laughs> they copied the arrangements, the vocal arrangements. They copied the riffs. You know, the, the, sometimes he would do the little keyboard riff in the mm -hmm. beginning or whatever. Like you hear on Let's Chill, that style of keyboard, or you hear the keyboard solo that he would be doing in the middle. Yeah, when they, yeah. you know, called. Everybody was trying to do that. Everybody was coming out trying to sing like like Aaron. Now, mind you, Aaron is coming out of the Stevie Wonder, Charlie Wilson vein. But in 1988, I got to tell you, is that prior to when Aaron was coming out, 
you had people that was you had like it was the Freddie Jackson, Luther Van Joss, who was really smooth. Mm-hmm. It was very easy. You had Elder Barge just doing his thing. So you had a lot of tenor, falsettos, Howard Hewitt, Freddie Jackson, like I said, Luther. But then when Aaron came, Aaron brought that urgency church vocal style back because at that time, black music was extremely polished. Because remember, in 88, anybody who's listening to that music when it's coming out, they're 18, 19, 20 years old. But everybody who was making music, the Luther Vandrosses and people like that, mm-hmm. these people are in their mid 30s, mm-hmm. 33, 34, 35. So it's a different, it's a different approach to the music. So if I'm a person, I'm listening to what Teddy is doing. First of all, he's producing the records as if they were rap records. Because mm-hmm. when you look at that whole new Jack Swing component, I'm listening to him and you can tell that Teddy is a student of black music because you're hearing interpolations of previous black music that's in his record. So it's almost like the equivalent of what a lot of um, rappers were doing in the late seventies and the eighties, they would kind of take routines from other records Okay. And they were interpreted in their songs, you know, the melodies or whatever. And he was kind of doing that. So if you listen to a record that's like uh, Girl, I Got My Eye on You. Okay. You know. By today, yeah. It, it goes back to Carrie Lucas's Show Me Where You Coming From. It's a solo record. So you got to look that one up. Mm-hmm. Uh, you listen to My Prerogative. You listen to the vocal melody of My Prerogative. And then you go back and you listen to a record that dropped in 80 by um, a group called the Reddings. They were Otis Redding's sons. They had a record called Remote Control. You'll hear the melody mm. of Remote Control. you hear that in my prerogative. Um, you listen to Just Got Paid. Um, there's a record that came out maybe almost 10 years prior, seven to eight years prior by a group called Bell and James called Living It Up on Friday Night. You know, and they talk about just got paid, but you'll hear a lot of riffs that are in those records, energy from those records, and you hear them in a lot of his music. You know, you listen to a record like uh, the remix to New Jack Swing, and he's riffing like there's a guy in Cool in the Gang. His name was Donald Boyce. There's a rec- he was on a record called Jungle Boogie. And he's riffing. He's not singing. He's doing all these these, these vocal sounds and all of this stuff like that. Mm-hmm. That's in Jungle Boogie. And you hear Teddy doing that in New Jack Swing. So the thing I loved about those early records that he was doing, those records captured the energy of the records that were out before. So when you hear them, but the thing, unique thing about it, and the reason why I love those records so much is that it kind of changed the game because it made young brothers want to be producers. Yeah. So it's different from guys on, on the rap side because they might've started out DJing, pause tapes and everything and they're gradually getting into production. But on the R&B side, you never had young black producers. Everybody was Kashif. Mm-hmm. Everybody was like in their mid thirties or older producing. The concept of a younger producer coming in, and don't get me wrong, 
there could have been some people, but on the magnitude that Teddy was doing it, Teddy was doing it, I hate to say first, but he was ahead of, cur ahead of the curve as a producer. And then he was right in the pocket. The timing was perfect because the era, the Generation X era, and that's the era that the people who were born roughly between 1965 and 1980, that's that pocket. That's mm -hmm. us. So the music that we're hearing is right in the pocket for our taste because we're growing up and we're growing up on rap music, but we still hear, we still know the Earth, Wind and Fire. We still need know the Motown records, mm -hmm. you know? So all those records inform us. So all of those things are all in these records that he's doing and all the other records that are coming out by other artists who are doing the exact same thing. So it makes it really, really special. But then one of the unique things that Teddy did is he took the best of all the, all those different components of music's past and he put it into one. Not so much just the sound, I'll just say the singing. Let's look, use the singing for one example. If you listen to an R&B record in the 70s and 80s, it might start off real slow. They'll sing at a certain pitch and then they'll go ahead and gradually build up to this whole dramatic build up and they'll come down again. Perfect example, you know, you hear Whitney Houston record or something like that. Yeah. But when you, those new Jack Swing records, it's like they just cut all the guts <laughs> out of all the excess of all of that music that was out in the 70s and 80s and they just kept the best part. So when you listen to someone like Aaron Hall singing, he's going to get you from the jump. He's going straight for the jugular. He's not going to wait until the bridge to go off. He's going to hit you straight <laughs> from the gut, right? And then also with the records, the, the production, the music, okay? The music is in those R&B records. They kind of build up, they're elongated. The up-tempo records might be elongated or whatever, mm -hmm. but he's taking the best part of the records, the rhythm, all of that, and he's putting them in there. And it's really he's, he's really critical as a producer because funk music was dead. Because what happened was music in the 80s was becoming polished. So all everything that was that made up funk music, all the um, many band members and the different type of live instrumentation, when the music videos were coming in, all of a sudden it was focused on the lead singer, focused on the key person. Mm -hmm. So now it was to have 50, 50, you know, 10 guys on stage or whatever, it just didn't fit that component. The music had to be smoothed out. So a lot of that edginess of the music kind of like it just disappeared mm. because the music had changed. So he came and he brought the, the funkiness of the music back because it was gone, mm. but he made it for us. But he, but the, the thing about it is that he was his time, but he was before his time because when he was doing these records, R&B was still an adult uh. industry. So remember, because Teddy, when he's coming out with these records in 88 and 89, he's 21, 22, you know, he's a young guy. But the music, everybody's much older. They're 10, 15, 20 years older. So the music is still skewed old, even though he's in. So he's kind of like in between, but the notoriety and everything that it's, he, he's getting 
the notoriety, so to speak, but he's not like huge. He doesn't become hit, hit the magnitude of a Jam and Lewis or someone like that because the music is still older. Yeah. So it's like he's so, and that's the misfortune that he had because that came a little bit later. Even though internally in our age group we loved him. Yeah. But outside of that, a lot of artists were like, you know, if you were thirty five, they they didn't see it. They, they didn't see the musicality in the records. Mm. You know, but he had that hot sound and he was doing everybody. It's, it's a window, man. He's doing Stephanie Mills. Yeah. He's doing the Jacksons. He's doing a lot of people. Yeah, James Ingram, he's doing JT a lot. Yeah. He's, he's doing JT. He's doing the remixes and all that. So the sound is there, but it's almost as if like the business kind of affected him because he's dealing with all of that. And it's kind of kind of crazy. Because you're dealing with everything that's going on behind the music. So the music component is there, but he's not getting the notoriety. Of course, within our age group. You know, I saw one of your videos where Damien was talking about how um, they didn't win a Grammy. They didn't yeah, win American yeah. Music Awards. They didn't win Soul Train and Music Awards. And I can kind of understand that because a lot of people look back at these artists. They say, oh, so-and-so didn't win a Grammy. But I, I challenge that because all you have to look at is who else was competing during that period. So if you go look up um, in any year, let's go from 88, 89, 90, 91. And you look at the winners, Grammy winners, American Music Award winners, Soul Train Award winners, but you also have to look at who else was competing in that category. And you will see that most of the people who were winning during that time, it was like a Luther Vandross, it was Anita Baker, yeah, yeah. People like that, they were older because the industry was still a, a, a more mature person's game. So they basically hadn't caught up with the young music until the 90s are rolling around. And so yeah. you start getting people like the Puffies and all that. Now they're starting to infiltrate the music industry as young people. But the music industry across the board, it's an older game. Mm. So they're not looking at the magnitude because, again, that's the industry. So when you see guys doing what they're doing, you know, it's going to fall on deaf ears beyond the fan base because at that point, you got to understand Luther Vandross is huge. Yeah. He's yeah. still huge in the 80s. Uh, Freddie Jackson is huge in the 80s. Luther, um, Anita Baker is huge. So right now, guy is caught between, they're like the new music, but they're caught in between what's going on now and then what's around the corner mm. and those those music the, the the records that they were doing teddy's music it was great i loved it i loved the samples i loved trying to figure out what the sample was and at that point in time i thought he was playing the instruments and doing everything i'm listening to a record <laughs> like my fantasy and all the sounds and he's sampling uh a record um Sarone's Rocket in the Pocket. He's sampling James Brown records, breakbeats. Uh, and I'm like, okay, how is he playing all of these? I mean, I, I, didn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't get it. I'm like, how is he doing all of this? Because at that time, you know, the way we kind of were up on production, we're up yeah. on all of that stuff, that stuff wasn't like that back then. Unless you were in the music industry or you were actually work, doing music yourself, but yeah. you were a fan, you just liked the music. You just, you didn't know. Yeah. You didn't know what was going on behind the scenes, how he's putting the records together. There weren't no platforms like what you have. 
So if we were just in the dark, we were just loving the music. Yeah. And yeah. I just think that, that those early records were, that's my favorite time. But as he moved out of that, I think the Bobby album um, is one of his greatest crowning achievements yeah. because one, if you look at that, everything's kind of in place now because he's got the budget because he's now he's with MCA now. Yeah. So he's got the budget. You've got your own studio. You've got your crew of background singers. Everything's you got everything at your disposal. So really, if you look at that record, that it's like to me, that's the, Teddy's production on that album is, a, is the equivalent of him being like a Quincy Jones yeah. on that album. He's got all the ingredients together. You got the songwriters. You got the background singers. You got all the components that are there, and then you got Bobby. Yeah. So when you look at that's what make that that makes that album so special. Because when you listen to the other album, the other album, Don't Be Cruel, captures Bobby in that vein. But when you listen to it, it's more, it's, it's not as seamless as Bobby. He's going in, obviously the records are dope. They're being written directly for him or whatever. It's great. But Bob, it captures Bobby in his element as an artist in terms of growth, the range, even yeah. though even though the face records. And then there's records that Bobby's producing on his own that record, but the range, yeah. um, the songwriting, um, in terms of New Jack Swing, yeah. to me, that record represented a maturation of New Jack Swing. Yeah. You know, one of the things conceptually, creatively, go ahead. Yeah. No. Go ahead. A lot of people are probably just getting news about a person called Gene Griffin um, and GR production and and how and, and the role that Teddy played, because Teddy has been talking a lot more about it. So a lot of people are like, who mm-hmm. is this Gene guy? From the research you did, um, how was he able to get away with um, having the writing credits on my prerogative or 2300 Jackson Street? Um, or anything that te- uh, Teddy did, and Teddy's name wasn't listed in there. Um, how was he able to get away with, with that when he was? People would have seen while well, he wasn't in the studio. Okay, well, I'm gonna tell you this: is um, I'm an avid researcher, and I remember looking at those records in '88, '89, '90. I mean, anything pertaining to New Jack Swing, I was on it articles, magazines, newspapers, the albums. Here's the deal. You already know, Teddy had a deal with Zamba. Okay, and that's, yeah, right. yeah. He had a deal with Zamba to do records with him. But if you look at, there's a period, as a window when Teddy is doing records for Jive Zamba artists. Obviously, one of the earliest ones he does, um, the awesome, the, the Raps New Generation record. Okay. All right. So that group who does that record, they're signed to Jive Records. Okay. All right. They're signed to Jive Records. You're doing records for Kumo D. Kumo D is signed to Jive Records. He's a Jive artist. So mm-hmm. he's doing records for Jive and that's, that's Zamba Publishing. That's Zamba. Now he has a he has a publishing company with them that's uh the publishing company is called Don Ryle. 
Donrel, yeah. D O N slash R L. Okay, you look at albums or whatever. You didn't look at the guy album. You'll see that public. That was his publishing company with yeah. Zamba. But then what happened was when he got with Gene, Gene got his own publishing deal, and Gene's publishing company was called Cal Gene, and that publishing company was with Virgin. Was with Virgin. So when you look in terms of that, that's how the Boy George connection got there is because Boy George was a virgin artist. Okay. You know, when you look at a lot of productions, if you go and look at the productions that has Gene's name on it, you will see Cal Gene slash Virgin. And what was happening was with Gene being the manager, Gene is securing the production deals, but the production deals are going through his publishing company. So when you he's sticking his name on these records that he's not even writing, goes his production company. See, so understand now when you look at what's happening now, everybody in the past maybe 15, 20 years, everybody's business savvy. He's publishing and this, <laughs> but you got to realize back then it wasn't that way. You got to realize there weren't young people in the music industry like that. And the ones that were coming in, like New Edition, they were signed directly to a management company. They weren't signed directly to MCA. Troop signed directly to a management company. They weren't signed directly to the company. In that type of situation, that's always happened. That's always been a thing where you've always you've had artists sign to management companies and then the management company signed to the label to do the deal with the label. And mm -hmm. what happens is the management gets the money and then the artists get whatever they get. Same situation. But for Gene to do what he did, obviously, because Gene was already in the music business, but he's not the only person doing it. But he's learning that what he's doing, that's the industry standard. Wow. That's the, that's the industry standard for years. Even when you go back before, back to the 30s and the 40s, when um, God, the guys were doing jazz records, Cab Calloway and those guys, when you sign... You signed to a manager, that manager owned you. That manager owned you. You couldn't do anything. You know, all of the Italian mob guys, they own the booking companies. They own the clubs. They own the venue. So if you wanted to do business with them, you had to sign contracts. Like, for example, there was one artist who was a jazz pianist. He signed a contract to where, and you you had a Timmy interview where he was talking about contract perpetuity, yes. same situation with the jazz guys. So what happened with the jazz guys, you sign a contract with them, when the manager dies, the contract goes to his wife. Wow. When, when his wife dies, the contract goes over to his kids. You see what I'm saying? So, you know, when you look at that model, that model had already existed. So when you know, to all respect due to Gene, he wasn't the originator of that. He was following a business model that existed long before he arrived on the scene so you're coming in and you're signing people and you're signing them to a to a management contract but it's a management contract the way you control everything but he signed himself as a fourth member so that means that not only is he taking the percentage as a group member he's taking also a management fee all right he's also <laughs> taking a producer fee Three different components. Charlie Wilson went through the same thing when he was with the Gap Band. Their record company owner 
was their producer, and he was a also like a fourth member. Wow. So everything flowed through them. So they so it's what the time they're making all these big records, outstanding and all of that, they're broke. Everything that's going to all the houses that they're getting, all the cars they're getting, all through the manager. So that whole mo- that business model that we see, that is, you know, they learned it. You know, so if you look at black managers doing that type of stuff, they learn it, you know, from the white record industry. That was the one created. Jimi Hendrix the same way. As great as he was, his manager kept 80, he kept 20, and his uh-huh. manager kept him on the road, kept him high, you know, and just burned him out, kept him on the road. And when he tried to leave, a lot of strong arm tactics he used to go ahead to bring him back. You know, so when you look in terms of who Gene was, Gene coming out of that, you're following that business model. So when you sign, the, you create a contract and these guys are signing it, they don't know, but everything is flowing through him. But as long as you're artists and you got your money, you got your car, you got your apartment, your condo, whatever you got, everything is sweet. But then what happens is when you, but you're basically an employee, you know, you're basically an employee. So he's controlling every single thing. So that's the tragedy of them is that the momentum that they had and because of those shady business practices that kept Teddy out of on the running to win BMI awards, those BMI songwriting awards. Yeah, because he wasn't. Um, right around 88, 89, he was in the pocket. He should have been one of those BMI recipients. But because of his relationship with Gene and all the credits and all that stuff, uh, it um, he didn't benefit from that. So it wasn't until later when his business got right that he was able to benefit and start winning, you know, you know more accolades and awards and all of that. But you've seen the, the, the interviews that he has in terms of credit, uh, songwriting credit and publishing and royalties and all that stuff. And, you know, we look at that like it's crazy now because artists are up on business practices. Yeah. yeah. You know, nowadays artists leave managers. They leave managers and go, and go get new ones just like that. But back then, when you was with a manager, that was it. Wow. You were stuck. You were stuck with that manager and you couldn't get out. And back then, you know, you didn't have money to get, get a lawyer or it was some street stuff that was actually going on that kept you under the thumb of that manager, you know? And they, and they couldn't get a, they couldn't get away until they did a deal with MCA for the second album. And that's how they were able to finally get away from him. But, you know, as far as lawyer fees and stuff like that, man, but it was rough. You know, there are, you know, interviews, he talks, Teddy talks about the where, hey, I couldn't pay my taxes. I couldn't do this. I couldn't do that because everything was tied up with Gene. Now, so Teddy's you know? the, um, you know, as much as we're, I'm a big fan, he's the one person who, mm-hmm. at this point in time, I haven't gone to interview. I've interviewed mm-hmm. his engineers, his co-producers, his writers, his singers, mm-hmm. his, co- his Timmy and Damien and everyone. Um, I'm very soon probably Aaron Hall. Mm-hmm. So I'm still waiting for that opportunity. But one of the things that we're, we're probably seeing recently is his events of of what happened compared to what the others who have been on the show have said seem to be some conflicts and somebody who studied history I mean what are your thoughts about the differences in in sort of what some of his events of how things happen compared to what others who were there are saying my thoughts on it is in one sense 
from a human perspective, again, because we're content creators, we're writers or whatever. So we write and study the history that artists make. Artists make the history, we write about it. Now, depending on what side of the fence you're on, um, a person can look at people like us as like, yeah, you know, you weren't there. So you don't know. But then I played devil's advocate and looked at and look at the artists that they were there in real time. They're going through all of the stuff. They're going through the creative process. They're doing the music, everything, but they're not historians. So they can talk about what happened to them because they experienced it. But to put it within the context, um, the chronological sequence of how it happened, because um, all you have to do is you put those, you play those interviews, you go back and you read some stuff, and you see a lot of gray areas. You see a lot of gaps. Mm. You see from a lot of chron- from a chronological standpoint, the dots are not connected. Dates are wrong. Like I just watched one um, that they were talking to him about the group disbanding in 1990, and he was like, "Yes, no, but the group didn't just you know you put out an album in 1990. You know whatever you were going on behind the scenes is what's going on behind the scenes. But you put out an album in 1990." So you didn't disband in 1990. You're going on tour 1990, 1991. So you're not disbanded. You eventually disband. So for somebody who's trying to follow that timeline and study the history of a group, because Guy is an enigma, you know? And it's important. And the reason why I say that is that here's a group that comes out. You come out in a period where the music is changing. You're at the forefront of it. But the industry is an older industry. So they're not necessarily looking at what you're doing as something that's original or something that's monumental or groundbreaking. Now, from a younger person, when I'm seeing them, the look, the vibe, the energy, the style, everything, it's it's great. But if you're an older person, you know, you might be looking at them, especially you're an industry guy, okay, it's the hot sound, but you're not looking at them as game changers because you're older mm-hmm. you don't understand it so that means that here's a group that comes out in 88 but then they break up in 91 going into 92 91 is right mm-hmm. but you break up before sound scan now sound scan uh-huh. sound scan evens the playing field for for, for black artists because uh-huh. sound scan now you're able to track the sales of an album you see, you're able to track the sales of an album. So based on the first week sales, the album goes to the top 100. It goes to number one. So one, if you're tracking the sales, now all the funny funny bookkeeping, the funny accounting, that's not going to happen because you know how much you sold. Mm. All right. Another thing, too, is going to expand your visibility. Because even though guys doing these records, you know, at that time, you don't have a lot of, you know, BETs out there. But you don't see guy on a lot of platforms. The only existing platforms they're on that are out there, you see him on Arsenio yeah. Hall. Oh, you see him Showtime yeah. in the Apollo. I saw them once on uh, Julie Brown's dance uh, dance machine or whatever her dance show was. So whatever whatever was out there, they were doing it, but the platform did not exist. So when you and then they're a visual group. Plus, and then also you didn't have Double XL, you didn't have Source. You didn't have um, a spin magazine, but they weren't capturing them. So, so you didn't have the 
synergy, the media synergy that was there that kind of really helped elevate him. And that's why people like us are very important because by us seeing this, we have the ability to elevate these cats. The talent elevates them, but our observation and celebrating these people also takes them up their notch. But that didn't exist back then. Hmm. It didn't exist. So guy comes out 88, 89, 90. Do, they do these records. But keep in mind that even though they're coming out and they have the sound, Bobby Brown emerges as the centerpiece. Even though his sound is influenced out of that whole Teddy Riley guy thing. All right. Mm. I'll be sure he becomes like a centerpiece. It doesn't mean that the fans don't love him and guys not blowing up, but I'll be sure. Keep sweat. You got to realize when the guy album, the guy album took a year to go platinum. I remember wow. looking at a, a write on magazine and it had an image, they had an ad, and they were dressed in the white outfits that they had on on the Groove Me video, and it had platinum and i was like wow you know and again i was 18 19 so i'm sitting so i'm tracking it but there are not a lot of media components that are out there so mm. so the, the album sounds big the songs are popular but it takes them a year to go platinum now they go platinum 89 but then what happens is in the midst of them going platinum now they run into the issues with gene so by the time they hit the platinum component teddy's on his way out the door trying to lead Gene. You see what I'm saying? So when you look in terms of what they were, you know, they had an album. That if they didn't come out with the future, they would have had the one album, came out in 88, 89, they had the issues with Gene and we wouldn't have heard from them anymore. But, but thankfully that, that wasn't the case because Teddy was on fire. The group was on fire. They were able to sign directly to MCA. And of course, we know the rest is history. But once again, the future drops in 1990. What happens? The album is fire. A lot of singles are coming off the album, mm -hmm. but just like how Bobby Brown's album got lost to the cracks because hip hop soul is coming, guys dropping singles, but who's coming up behind them? Jodeci, Boys the Men, the next wave of groups that are coming. So now, Boys to Men comes out with Cooley Hall Harmony that sells, you know, five, six million copies. And of course, sales, they have their place. And even though people will always love Guy, that pocket now that they were in, other groups are coming behind them. Mm. And they're kind of getting left behind. But just when they get their momentum, they break up. <laughs> So they so so when you look, they were they were of their time, and they were before that time. But the tragedy was the management situation that they had. They came out in a period where the music industry was a lot older. So from a media perspective, they didn't get a lot of the notoriety and the respect. Because you got to realize when they came out in '87 and they were hot in '89. Um, rap music was just starting to be pulled into the industry and in embraced. Oh. Mm -hmm. It's a style of music, this new Jack swing thing. 
okay, also stood out. So everybody is like really leaning towards them. So it's not until 90, 91, 92, that where now the music industry is doing a complete changeover to where now everybody is starting to be younger. The artists are younger. The producers are younger. Wow. The executives are younger. But all of that, you got to credit Guy. You can give Bobby Brown a new addition some credit. But you got to really give God that credit for igniting that because now that opens the door to where young brothers are seeing Teddy Riley, a young cat doing this thing. They say, well, hey, I can do it too. So you see, so now the style of music, you know, everything is kind of like pulling from that. So guy is kind of like a catalyst in that, but they don't get a chance to see the benefits because of the way the industry setup was, the management and the momentum. Wow. And then all of these disputes and everything that's going on with them, by that time, hip hop soul comes in. Whole different energy, whole different vibe. Still an extension of what they're doing, mm. but throughout the 90s, they never, never pick the baton back up and jump back in the race for a variety of reasons. And of course, you know, you see the interviews and you've done the interviews and you kind of <laughs> know. And that's, that's basically the tragedy of that. And of course, there's going to be a sentimental um, connection we are going to have with those groups because God's my all-time favorite group. Yeah. Because they remind me of the past, but they're also with the music of the future. Nobody was like them ever. Um, I also wrote a piece in my Souls of Black Notes blog spot um, about Guy. Um, even when I go back and I look at, you spoke of Teddy Riley signed the contract for uh, Sound of New York Records. Now, later on, I found out that that was Gene's old label. It just got reactivated, uh-huh. you know, because Sound of New York was Gene's old label from the early 80s. Last night, a DJ saved my life that was on Sound of New York Records. Okay. But man, to be... 18, I think I was 89. So I was 19 years old. Yeah, I'm 19 years old, almost 20. And to see a young guy signing a contract, having his own label, that was major. (laughs) You understand? Nobody, nobody, even though he was the vice president, of course, Gene, we know the Gene situation. Yeah. But to see somebody there signing a contract with his own record label in 1989, man, that was huge. We take we take it for granted now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In '89, yeah. yeah. Teddy Roddy to have his own record label or be a vice president of a record label during that time. Yeah. Come on, man. That was just really, really major. And then to have the groups. Um, another major moment of that time was. Rex and Effect did a performance um, at the Apollo Theater. Mm. At the time, the record New Jack Swing was out. Teddy comes out, performs the record. He starts naming the people. And they all come out on stage. <laughs> so I'm seeing Big Bub. I'm seeing his family members. I'm seeing Rex. And it was like, wow, this is an empire in the making. Yeah. I'm listening to him the fan- doing my fantasy. You calling him off saying and this one and that one. And it's like... It was exciting to see. Yeah. It was exciting to see where they had an empire 
um, in the making with all of these artists, you know, Redhead Kingpin and just yeah, yeah, the records. They, abstract and um, so abstract, yeah. abstract man. Yeah. It's just you know you had, and I, I remember buying them, buying the records, and I'm anything that had his name on it back then, I was yeah. buying it. Deja, and yeah. just to see it, De- Deja is another one, and here it is with Deja. I'm glad you brought them up because Deja was on Virgin. Uh, okay. So when you look at the credits on the Deja album, <laughs> yeah, there's no, it was no Teddy on Deja. Yeah. He's he's got the arranger, you know, co-production arranging credits yeah. for songwriting. Gene's name is on those records <sighs> as a writer, as a co-writer. Yeah. You know, but Bernard Bell wrote some songs on there. But I'm telling you, when you listen to the Deja album, um, there's a Sony out on there called More and More. And when you hear that it's a ballad. And it has the thunderclap in the beginning and got the chords and it sounds like a record that comes straight out of it could have been made it could have been a lost track or make it last forever wow so when you go back and you listen to more and more by deja and, and because you love make it last forever album so much yeah. you can hear the, the chords and the whole it's like make it last forever wow. you hear it but you know um during that time i think that's what it was man is that you know back then as a manager you could you were signed directly to an artist um boy artists were signed directly to you you controlled it and remember these guys were young yeah. they didn't have any any concept of the music industry and back then i mean you, you watch the videos you know the street energy was really important so you needed cats either with you to troll your artists or if you're an artist, you need a street cats with you to keep you from being exploited. Yeah. It's unfortunate because, you know, by them having Gene with them, it kept them from being exploited by outside forces, but they wound up being exploited anyway. Yeah. As, I mean, as, as, a, as a group. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I know we could we could go on and on and and and, and loads of uh, you know, this has been great. What we'll do is we're going to have to come back because sure, the one sure. and talk about Bernard Bell because a lot of people keep hearing his name. Sadly, he passed away um and he mm-hmm. had been struggling with a stroke for for, for a year so we couldn't get to mm-hmm. talk to him but you know, when we come back, we're going to have to just focus on what but the you know the magic of, of of Bernard Bell and 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 I think one of the interesting things about what we've done today is that you know I was in Nigeria when Teddy came out and you know when I watched New Jack Swing and he is naming all these people in the videos I'm thinking this guy is this is this is the biggest person I can imagine you know doing my fantasy and doing all that stuff I could hear a track and said oh that's Teddy I, that's and and this is you know I didn't have the rights on the black beats or anything like that, so I've been so he inspired me to just want to understand music to buy an album and look at the credits and to see who, who wrote that stuff and, and yeah I knew about Don Real and all the you know, all that stuff, and you know and you know the next time we get back together we it'll be interesting to find out what happened to Teddy's innovative production in the nineties because it seems as if he was a trendsetter. But even the people who he overtook, like The Face and Jimmy and Terry, they they kept going and he seemed to have just kept regressing. So it'll be interesting just for us to focus on, on some of those things. But you wanted to... 
Well, 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 one part, I'll just go ahead in my perception of that, because there was a drop off in that. And I think that um, the reason why there's a shift, that momentum that he had late 80s, early 90s. And of course, we know that another, al another level album sold a lot. And we also saw the uh, Dangerous album sell a lot. But one of the things that I think the momentum is up at that time, he's also trying to go ahead and start his labels and the business side. And sometimes when you're a creative person, you know, there's the left brain and the right brain. Mm. Obviously, the one, the left brain is the analytical side, business side. And then there's also the right brain, which is the creative side. So sometimes it's hard to kind of do both because if you in one of your videos, I think it was with Levi. Um, he was talking about how it must have been Levi or Eric. And they talked about in the midst of the Another Level album, they missed out on a lot of touring yeah. because of Teddy's production work. You see what I'm saying? So what happens is it's one of those type of situations, once again, that's another component as well, because you, you wear all these hats. You're a business person, you're an artist, and you're a producer. Mm. So it's hard to do everything at once when you're like the centerpiece. So something is going to go ahead and drop off because there were acts, 911 and uh, other groups that, that that never really came the out. Because they had a toe Tammy Lucas yeah, album that was yeah. completed by him and the Neptunes. They, they, he, mm -hmm. And that Interscope gave them the I gave them a budget to sign them and, and they didn't release that. 911, they had the whole album, which was leaked. You know, they took yeah. songs from that and, and, and stuff. So he, yeah, he, it seemed, yeah. So that was all those, because most of us knew about 911, not just because we saw them in the magazine, but there were little articles and we couldn't wait to, 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 to say this is a new You're thing ready. and stuff. But, um, and it just seemed, I, I never thought that he should have been in Black Street. I think that, that you know, he was, because John Marie and the rest said he was, he was just on fire, but when he did the Black Suite, he had to, he, you know, he either kept them from going on tour or he was going with them. And so the production work was just being left behind. The deal they had with MCA and, and our Interscope was to turn out music. But when he's doing it, mm -hmm. trying to combine the two, it just, um, it just affected everything. But I know we're short of time for stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but there was an issue with, 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 with Zamba too, is that, you know, they had some issues be, and he eventually re-signed his deal with Zamba publishing deal. But there's a moment where there's little issues with Zamba because he wasn't producing any acts on Zamba. Your publishing deal was contingent on, you know, producing those artists and it just wasn't happening or whatever, obviously. You know, but about right around, I say 90, between like 93, 95 or whatever, they signed, he signed a, a, another deal with them. For, it was a better publishing deal with Zamba. But I just think that, you know, as we wrap this up, I look at Teddy as he's like a modern day Curtis Mayfield. Wow. Curtis Mayfield, if you know who he was, Curtis Mayfield was a creative guy. But what it was was that he, he, earned, he owned a label. He wrote and produced for everybody. So the thing about it is this guy did five or six groundbreaking soundtracks. You know, if you can look them up. Mm. Between 71 and, and 75, 76, not only was he doing soundtracks, he was producing artists, he was making records for himself, he was producing his group, and he was trying to run a business. 
And along the way, a lot of people he could he could have signed, they slipped through the cracks because he just couldn't do it all. And I just think that with Teddy, um, by you know, everybody's great at multiple things, but I think your infrastructure is extremely important. So when you look at like a Jay-Z and the Dame Dash, even though Jay-Z is undisputedly talented. You got to have a Dame Dash to run interference. You always got to have somebody to run interference for you to be able to do all these things. I'm not saying that, you know, Teddy didn't have somebody to run interference, but it's just when you are the star, you are the centerpiece, you are the glue, it's kind of hard. So now everything is changing because his is the sample driven. His is all of those different things he was doing, but the style of music was coming in. He kind of fit right into that, but I would say probably right around like 2000, it really kind of like slowed down. I think he did Joe Stutter, worked with Joe yeah. in like about 2000, and it kind of just like tapered off because yeah. the style of music was changing. Also, it was more sample driven. You know, he's a musician by nature. You know, of course, music changes the cycles, but the business component, and then you're dealing with the, you're still dealing with the guy issues. You're still in dealing with the Black Street issues. So they're recurring in the background amongst everything else. Yeah. So when you look at his career, um, regardless, still influential, made a lot of classic records that will never be duplicated. He inspired a lot of people to want to be in the music business. He's a catalyst. You know, guys, a catalyst. Those, those the catalyst to everything that's happening now. You don't have a Puffy, you know, without a Teddy. You don't have a Michael Bibbins without a Teddy. It's just so much. And then in terms of God being a group, changing the dynamic, because even New, New Edition was a young group, New Edition, their, their, their packaging, their image was that of an older group. They had the suits and the ties and the bow ties. Yeah, yeah. They were an image of an older group, even though we're a younger group. But Guy came and they were the image they were what a young R&B group should look like. So is that why Heartbreak seemed to have been their biggest album because they just shifted their styling from that? Yeah, Heartbreak Heartbreak was, a, it was almost the equivalent of what Don't Be Cruel was. It kind of, even though they had fans, Heartbreak, Heart, any Heartbreak was the album that really solidified them um, as a unit, visually, creatively, artistically, and obviously because they had Jam and Lewis. And Jam and Lewis, you know, it's different. You know, they had other producers and they made cool songs or whatever, but it was just, they were right in the pocket. The album came at the right time because there's a turnover. The new music is coming. Music videos are out. Mm -hmm. But at their core, it captured them who they were. And then, of course, when the videos came, it, it, it pulled them right out, right into the mix because you see them dancing, they're performing on stage, you know? So everything is an extension of what it is that they do. So it captured who they were as an artist. And that's why people love that album. The other stuff, people like it, but for a lot of people, any heartbreak is where it begins. Mm -hmm. And it's the catalyst for those guys to go do what they do to build their legacy on the, on the, on the solo side and come back around again. And I think that that's what, if Guy was able to do that um, where they are today, they wouldn't be where they were. Yeah. We love them, but it's just, it was always something. Management, industry, internal implosion, all of that, you know, um, 
because they're three different individuals yeah. or two individuals. You got a brother and you got the other individual. They're brothers spiritually, but but also the person on the other side, he's a group member, but he's also a producer. So he's producing not only you, but he can produce everybody. So he can still be in the mix. But if you need him, you know, to really be that missing piece, it kind of stalls them. You see that on the rap side with Pete Rock and CL Smooth. You see that with DJ Premier and Gangstar. There's mm -hmm. a lot of records that Pete Rock did that DJ Premier did that were big records for other artists that you wonder, what if you did those records within your unit? Your mm -hmm. group? Yeah. You know, and I'm sure they have reasons and all of that, but I think it's just that they were before their time, they were of their time, but there were so many landmines, so many things that really stalled their momentum. They should be higher in the canon of music. As music lovers, we're gonna love them, but they're almost like, from a broader perspective, they're almost gonna be like a footnote. Yeah. You know, it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be. <laughs> it's, not, it's, not, it's not meant to be disrespectful because to me, that's my all time favorite R&B group, but they didn't get to where they needed to be and i hope they kind of able to turn around because guys are getting older man yeah so Sheldon, you know? tell people where they can find your if they want to follow you if they want to sort of yes read up yes on your stuff. yes yes um check out the uh, sheldon's taylor souls of black notes at blogspot.com i have over a hundred plus um uh, written pieces long form pieces some of short form pieces that um, capture um, the document music of the 90s, uh, music of the 70s and 80s. Um, they capture it in a historical context. Um, there's a lot of references that I've referenced from other periodicals that I actually have. So what you were talking about stuff, this is not just stuff that's opinion driven. This is stuff that's actually thoroughly researched. Um, so I'm also on all social media platforms. Um, at Shelltail Instagram, Sheldon Taylor Facebook. And I look forward to getting back with you again to kind of discuss this and just kind of flesh it out even further. But in the end, our legacy is to celebrate Guy Teddy Riley, but also the music of the 90s because it's such a special time that it's the jump off point. The way our parents loved music in the 60s there are people who look at music of the 90s as their jump off period okay. when people talked about love and all these other different type of things. So when they hear Make It Last Forever, somebody that's 15 years old, that's like us listening to maybe a Luther Vandross record or a Stevie Wonder record. Yeah. So congratulations to you for really curating these interviews, making sure the history doesn't die. And I look forward to talking to you again. Yeah, definitely. Soon. Yes, yeah, we're going to do that soon, guys, because I mentioned um, Bernard Bell, and, and there's quite a number of stuff, but, you know, thanks, guys, for, for sticking with us. There was a lot of people that were that had some major comments that were coming through, but it, it was quite hard to balance it to, to, to be able to answer the questions. So next time, we actually, when we do go live, we will, we will be able to respond to the questions and stuff. So, um, yeah, so, guys, um, well, thanks for watching, and, um, yeah, we'll be talking back soon.